Matthew. This is message number 36 in the series, entitled Bread and Water. And we're going to be looking at the remainder of chapter 14. So that's verses 13 to 36. And here at the start, I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. So chapter 14 opens with another rejection story, and in some ways it's similar to the ending of chapter 13. This particular rejection story is also a, re- a resolution of John the Baptist's story in the gospel. It's, it's a rejection of John. It's a rejection of his message to the point of imprisonment and death by beheading. Now, John's death was um, made by order of Herod Antipas, who was the governor of, of sorts over Galilee and Perea at the time. And we know that Antipas had divorced his wife, had married his brother's wife, um, who had divorced his brother to marry him. And so John had rebuked the unlawful marriage um, that uh, violated the Old Covenant law in a a number of ways, actually. Um, And in doing so, he earned her scorn in particular, that being Herodias. And so when the opportunity was right, Herodias seized it and through her daughter uh, with Philip, Salome. She had her to ask for John the Baptist's head immediately. So Antipas was put um, essentially into uh, uh, the, the old rock and the hard place, and he really had put himself there, put himself in a corner, and he really couldn't refuse the request, and so John was beheaded, and so his head was ultimately brought to Herodias. Now, it's, it certainly is interesting as we notice a number of parallels in, in the stories of the lives and, and the ministries of John and of Jesus. And John's rejection and death certainly foreshadow the coming rejection and death of Jesus in the gospel. So the rest of chapter 14 actually gives us um, three um, miracle episodes Uh, And this is before another conflict with the Pharisees in chapter number 15, which returns us to that um, hostility that we've we've seen um, increasing as we are progressing through the through the gospel account. Now, Jesus' ministry, you will recall, began in Galilee with the imprisonment of John. Now, he had ministered for about a year before that in Judea and in Perea, and uh, the only gospel writer that really uh, you know, gives account of that time is John, um, but he had ministered for about a year in those in those places before he began um, that Galilee um, ministry, and so it was that John was imprisoned, uh, sort of at the beginning that signaled the beginning of Jesus' ministry there in Galilee, and now John's death seems to signal the soon end of that ministry because we are we are getting close to that turn toward. Jerusalem and, and away from Galilee in, in the ministry of Jesus. Now, you recall that chapter 13 had special instructions for the 12 disciples. And as we go forward in the gospel, 
there is an emphasis on instructions for the apostles. So even when you read about miracles in, in this chapter and in the coming chapters of Matthew's gospel, even when you read about those miracles, they seem to primarily be worked for the benefit of the apostles and to teach them something. So we're getting into um, a, a very um, discipleship-oriented um, part of this gospel as Jesus' focus seems to turn toward preparing his apostles in particular for his death and resurrection and their um, ministries after that. So this chapter gives us uh, a miracle with the multitudes. It gives us a miracle with, the, with just the disciples and then gives us a, a little summary of, of miracles episode before Matthew moves on to this um, large conflict with the Pharisees that uh, they're at the beginning of chapter 15. So as we look at this tonight, we'll take each of, the, each of the three, verses 13 to 21, where we have the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, in verses 22 to 33, we have the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. And in verses 34 to 36, right at the end of the chapter is where we have that summary. So we have uh, Jesus healing all those um, that came to him. And again, not focusing on any um, particular healing, um, but rather a, a, a summary. So we're going to start here with the first miracle, and that is the feeding of the 5,000. Now it begins in verse 13. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart, and when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. So after Jesus heard the news, that being the news of the death of John the Baptist, uh, he took a boat and he went uh, across the lake, the Sea of Galilee, to go to a desert or to a wilderness place. Now, uh, it's translated um, desert here. Uh, sometimes it can be translated wilderness. And essentially, it just, it just indicates... Um, a, a barren place. It's 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 a it's a very rural place. Uh, it's away from um, villages and houses and and people and things. So it's that, that's all that's that's being um, described necessarily in this place. So we don't know exactly where it was. Now, as we look at the accounts and um, this account, this feeding of the five thousand is is actually um, the only miracle account that is in all four. Um, of the gospel accounts, and each each one has a little bit different um, details and things that that they add and they bring out. Uh, Mark has uh, a much longer account, and Matthew's is quite condensed compared to Mark. But Mark does make a note that Jesus went into the wilderness, and he did so because the press of the crowd, because they they were so. Um, thronged by these crowds of people. And I believe that Mark says that they, they, they weren't even able to eat. They were just being so constantly um, bothered, in, in, for lack of a better way of putting that. And so they, de they depart to go to this wilderness place. Mark also makes note of the fact that when Jesus gets in this boat to go across the lake, uh, at least across the northern part of the lake, when Jesus gets in the boat to go, his 12 disciples go with him. And so that's obviously the case as we continue reading um, in Matthews, but he just doesn't make a point of it right here. 
Now, we don't know that location. Um, they probably went from the northwest shore over to um, the northeast shore. Of course, you're looking the other way, so northwest would be over here, northeast would be o- over there. Um, but they probably went across that way, and then later they're going to go back. But when it became known that Jesus had left and where he went, um, even though he goes to this barren place, um, the crowds followed him on foot, which would have meant they would have probably had to walk a pretty good distance, especially for a large crowd of people, because later Matthew refers to them as a great multitude. Verse number 14, And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude, and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. So Jesus was moved with pity, and and the word compassion um, has that idea, it's, it's pity, it's, it's even, um, it's even in a, um, I think, you know, sometimes there might be reference to, uh, to yearning and, and, and those sort of things, that there, there's even an, an emotional feeling um, of pity uh, that Jesus had for this crowd. Obviously, they had many sick with them, and they had also probably walked a pretty good distance, so they would have either been, um, you know, carrying or helping them along in, in various ways. Uh, maybe some of them uh, might have come on some sort of animal or something. I mean, we just don't really know. But not only did Jesus feel pity toward this great multitude, he acted with compassion, and we're told that he healed their sick. Now, again, we're not, this is a summary so, statement here. We're not given any um, specifics of what types of sicknesses or diseases, and we can certainly understand this probably included all different types of, of diseases and sicknesses that they would have had, but Jesus healed them all, meaning that these, this crowd, they had brought these sick ones, and Jesus healed them. So obviously, though, this healing is not the point of the miracle. It's not actually the miracle of this episode that's being emphasized. It's, it's almost more or less contributing to the setting for which the miracle is going to take place. Now, verse 15. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves um, victuals. So, as the... As the day wore, wore on, and the, and the imp- indication is here um, that all day long Jesus is, is healing all these various sick ones that have come and these, these crowds of people that they have brought, and he's healing all day long. He's healing all these sick ones. And the disciples began to get concerned because they were in a very remote place. And there's obviously a large number, and we know that that number is given a, a little later on. Obviously, it's a large number of people. They've been in the desert place all day. They, they needed to go to be able to get out to uh, villages and, and such and be able to get something to eat. Maybe perhaps some of them uh, might be able to make it home. I you know, obviously, we don't know um, how far away they were. And so they suggested Jesus sends them away. And in verse 16, but Jesus said unto them, they need not depart, give you them to eat. So Jesus told the apostles, rather, rather than making them leave, you just give them food to eat. And John adds in his account in John 6 that Jesus, when he said this, he was testing them. He obviously 
knew not only what he could do, he knew what he would do. He knew what he was going to do. And so he says this, testing them, obviously testing their faith. Verse 17, And they say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. So the disciples respond, they've got five loaves of bread, and they've got two um, fishes, it says two, two uh, pieces of fish. Probably uh, these loaves of bread are probably um, like about a, a bun size of, of bread, uh, not very large. The fish probably, smaller fish, probably some smoked um, fish, um, something that, that really maybe one person, uh, maybe two, two people um, could possibly have a meal of. And so the implication is, is obvious here. <laughs> That wouldn't even begin to feed such a crowd. Um, and, and this exchange is actually quite reminiscent of the Old Testament account of, of Elisha uh, and the feeding of the sons of the prophets. And, and there in 2 Kings chapter number 4, it tells about Elisha feeding 100 men with only 20 loaves of bread. And that was a pretty remarkable miracle that Elisha did that fed that many men with that little supply of bread. But then when you think, think about what is being faced here, five loaves, two pieces of dried fish, and thousands of people, obviously that wouldn't even, that wouldn't even begin to make um, a dent. Verses 18 and 19, he said, bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and break and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. So Jesus had them bring the, the bread and fish to him. And he had the multitudes of Israel there in this wilderness. He had them to sit down. He's about to feed them with this food and he has them to sit down and as I understand the language that is used here and, and and as you look at some of the other accounts he had them to sit down in ranks or in rows so he, he possibly could have set them down in in rows of 50 or groups of 50 uh, rows or groups of 100 or, or something like that that's it's indicated um, in the language that's used across the accounts that he had them sit down in some orderly way, which also gives us a pretty good indication of how Matthew knew how many people that there were, because it's a pretty large, a pretty large crowd. Now, Jesus has this multitude to sit down, and we're told that he blessed the bread and he broke the bread, and that just simply means that he tore it into chunks with his hands. Now, breaking of bread. Um, which was literally done with the hands for the bread to be um, torn open. I understand it was a customary practice um, uh, within Judaism that they would never use a knife to cut bread, um, but that they would always break it and tear it with um, their hands. And it also, it also became, uh, became sort of a, a, an idiomatic expression just for having um, a meal, breaking bread. And that was not only... Um, in, the, in the Jewish culture, um, but in others beside. So Jesus blesses, he, he breaks this bread, and Matthew notes how that he gave it to the disciples, and then the disciples give it to the crowds. 
which means that, that Jesus works through them. He gives them pieces. He gives them pieces. And so the disciples take these pieces. Obviously, the disciples are not carrying enough pieces to feed 5,000 and, and more people. But they do go and distribute. So in verse 20, it says, And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the fragments that remained 12 baskets full. So from five loaves of bread, about the size of a, of a sort of a round bun, two small dried pieces of fish, Jesus made food to feed a multitude. And Matthew notes that not only did they eat, but they were filled. In other words, they ate to complete satisfaction. They didn't just have a little snack to sort of take the edge off of hunger. They were completely full to the point that they wanted no more. And, and we know that as well because there were leftovers. So they ate to, to satisfaction. And the disciples gathered, each of them gathered a basket full of leftovers. Twelve baskets full. Verse 21, and they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. So Matthew gives, he didn't give this number until he gets to this point. And at this point, he reveals the scale, the, the magnitude of this miracle that Jesus has performed. Again, Elisha fed 100 men with 20 loaves, and the servant there was also much like the disciples in questioning, well, how is this going to be enough to feed all these men? But Matthew tells us that there were 5,000 men, and then there were also women and children in this crowd. So obviously the, the, the women and children, now we don't know their number, but they could have easily caused that number to double, easily. If there's 5,000 men, there could easily have been another 5,000 women and, and children um, that were there considering their families and, and, and whatnot. So it very easily could have been 10,000. And I would say that's probably, uh, probably a minimal number to look at. And I've seen, and I've seen people um, go to, to different types of calculations and come up with this number and that number and, and, and that. And we don't know. Um, the exact number of those. We know it was 5,000 men. We know it was women and children beside that, which, which again means it could have easily have doubled that number at, at the very least. But again, that number could have been hard to count, but sitting them down in, in rows probably made it somewhat easier. Now, if we think back about this exchange between Jesus and the apostles, then we can see in, in this miracle that this miracle, even though it benefits this large crowd, this large multitude of people, it was obviously a miracle that was instructive to his disciples. And even later, Jesus will refer to it and ask them questions about what they learned from that. And what Jesus is doing here in this miracle particularly with his disciples, is that he is instructing them about who he is, 
about his identity. And we talked about how as we've come you know, through the gospel to this point, at different times we're seeing people wrestling with the identity of Jesus. Who is this man really? Uh, we saw the, the conclusion the Nazarenes come to, the conclusion many of the Pharisees came to, uh, the conclusions of the, of, of the crowd, and, and on and on we've seen different ones and the conclusions that they're coming to about, about who Jesus truly is. And so he's revealing his identity And what identity that he is revealing to them is that he is the son of God and he is the greater Moses. Now again, Matthew doesn't bring it out specifically here, but in in John's account, in John 6, he has the words of Jesus where Jesus connected this miracle with the manna from heaven that was given to um, Israel in the wilderness to feed them. And so again, he is the greater Moses. He is that prophet who was to come, but he's more than a prophet. John was more than a prophet, but Jesus is even more, more than a prophet because he is the son of God. And again, that's a confession that means he is God. It, 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 it um, greatly in, in, uh, incensed the Pharisees that he would make such a claim because they said he's making himself equal with God. So they understand he is creating here. He has power that only God has. And this is being shown particularly to the disciples. And again, if you read John's account, you know that the crowd missed it. Just like with the parables, they missed it. And Jesus explained to his disciples privately what, what these things meant. And so his, his disciples are learning this lesson, and the crowd is missing it. And then we have another miracle that, that Matthew links directly with the feeding of the 5,000, and that's Jesus walking on the water. So let's begin looking at that, beginning with verse number 22. And straightway... Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Now, Matthew uses this conjunction here and straightway, this word um, for immediately, and he's, he's intentionally connecting these two miracles together. And obviously, the, the three miracles here, they, f- they form a series um, before this um, conflict with the Pharisees beginning in chapter 15. So they're obviously connected in Matthew's gospel. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus commanded his apostles, the 12, to get into a boat and to go to the other shore, to go to the other side of the lake. And again, they're crossing that northern part um, of the Sea of Galilee, and they're to go to the other side. And he's going to send the multitudes away. And so he sends the multitudes away, and then when we get to the end of the chapter, there's a multitude surrounding him again. So in effect, Matthew has, has put these accounts in such a way that we especially see with this miracle, just like with the explanation of the parables privately in the house, this is a miracle privately for the disciples. No one else witnessed this, only only the 12. And Jesus is obviously revealing something 
about himself to them through it. Verse 23. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. So Jesus dismisses the multitudes and goes up into this mountain to pray. And again, we're not exactly sure um, where he was. But by the onset of night, um, Jesus was alone on this mountain. He goes up there to pray. The disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee, um, crossing that northern part of the lake. Verse 24 reads, But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. So when the disciples were out in the lake, now Matthew could be indicating that they were maybe about halfway um, of their journey. I don't know that it has to be that specific in what he's saying here. Uh, At the very least, what we know is, is that they were far enough that they weren't close to either shore. They're they're far enough removed, whether they were halfway or three-quarters of the way or a fourth of the way, I I don't know. But they're far enough away that that neither shore is, is easily within reach. They are, in a sense, isolated in the midst of the Sea of Galilee. And there's a strong wind that is hindering them. Matthew describes it as being a contrary wind. And you have to remember that they were in um, a small uh, fishing boat, um, probably would have uh, held, certainly would have held all of them, but wasn't really a large boat, more of a, more of a small boat. And the wind was causing these large waves. And so the waves were threatening this boat. They were threatening to either capsize this boat or to fill the boat with, with water and sink it. Um, so that so that they might drown or or be thrown into the sea. Now, just sort of as an as an aside, as we go through these miracles, there there are numerous practical lessons that obviously that that we could um, bring out about things that are taking place and things the disciples are learning. But just think about this this scene for a moment. They are in in, in the midst, so they are far away from the shore. They can't easily. Um, get to the shore, no matter what direction that they might try to go. And they're, they're being pounded by these waves because there's a, a, a wind that is opposing them. They're not making much progress. They are straining and toiling. And some of the other accounts um, bring this out a lot more than what Matthew does. But think about that and think about that scene and why they were there. Because they were where they were because of following the command of Jesus. They were in this situation out of obedience to Jesus' command. Well, we look at at this and we must never get the idea that following Jesus means the easy way. That following Jesus means the open and the smooth way. Oh, well, if I'm 
in the center of God's will, then everything is just going to be falling in place around me and everything is, is going to be open and there's, there's going to be smooth sailing ahead. That's not to be found in the Bible anywhere. And we see the disciples are here as a result of a direct command. And they, have, they are working to the point of exhaustion and fearing for their lives and are not able to accomplish what they've been told to do. And again, as a result of obeying Jesus' direct command. And again, there's numerous practical lessons that we could, um, that we could point out, but certainly as we read these things, we, we learn like, like God's provision um, in, in the feeding of the 5,000 and, and so on. But let's come back to verse number 24 now. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. Now the fourth watch was the Roman custom of dividing time. And I understand by that time in the first century was pretty well common with, within Judaism as well. The fourth watch of the night would have been from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And so it would have been the, it's the last watch, and it would have been the watch when the night ended and the dawn came. So that tells you, um, that tells you they, they have been out there for some hours by this time, just sort of stuck and at the mercy of the wind and the waves and are, and are probably doing everything they can just to keep themselves afloat rather than, than maybe even trying to make progress at this point. And we're told that at this time, after Jesus has spent this time, that they've been out there toiling, he has spent this time alone on a mountain praying. And we're not given any um, of that prayer. We're not given any of, of the, the communion that took place there between um, the Father and the Son on that mountain. Um, we, don't, we don't know what it was. We don't know what it was about. But after all of that, Jesus came walking toward the boat on this very rough water that is about to capsize them. Well, of course, in the Old Testament, it's Yahweh who walks on the water. It's Yahweh who rescues his people from the sea, places like Job chapter 9 and verse 8, Psalm 65 and verse 7, Psalm 77 and verse 19, Isaiah chapter 51 verses 9 to 11. Just a, just a small portion of passages that suggest such. So as Jesus is coming out walking in the midst of this storm, walking on this rough and choppy water toward this boat, he is intentionally manifesting his deity to his apostles. And that will become even more clear um, in just a moment. Verse 26. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. So the disciples were unsure, and they were obviously tired. It's late or early in the morning, I guess, by this point now. They've not slept. They've been fighting this storm for hours. They've, they're out and in, in isolated in the, in the midst of the sea. They're not close to the shore. Remember that Matthew made that point. 
and they see this form walking to them and they assume it is a spirit in other words some sort of a some sort of an apparition or or you know something of of that nature verse 27 but straightway jesus spake unto them saying be of good cheer it is i be not afraid so he told them not to fear and he identified himself but to really capture how he identified himself we've we've got to read this a little more literally ego me in the greek jesus said be not afraid i am i am is what jesus said to them now when i say the words i am in english and you have knowledge of the old testament you know that that is how god spoke his name to moses in exodus chapter 3 and verse number 14 that is also how god identified himself at different times to israel through his prophets isaiah chapter 43 verses 1 and 2 and 10 and chapter 44 and verse 10, chapter 45 and verse 22, chapter 46 and verse 4, chapter 48 and verse number 17. Now, the, the words in the, in the Greek, as, as what we are reading from a translation of, those Greek words are the words that are used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, in all of those passages. So Jesus is saying the very same thing that God said to Moses when he spoke his name to Moses. So clearly, not only is is Jesus manifesting his deity because he's walking in the midst of this storm on the water, making this path through the sea, not only is is he doing that, which again um, echoes from all of those passages in, in, in the Old Testament, and, and he's just sort of literally acting this out in front of them. But he also speaks to them and identifies himself as I am. A clear claim of divinity. And again, this is only to his disciples. There's no crowds here. There's no, there's no multitudes bobbing up and down in the Sea of Galilee to hear Jesus speak these words, there again is out of two to three hundred million people on the planet, there are 12 men who hear these words. Verse 28, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And so Matthew now at this point brings Peter to the forefront. And of course, we know that Peter was one of the 12. Um, that's already been made clear um, throughout uh, the passage. We know that these are the 12 apostles that are, that are on this boat. And Peter is brought to the forefront of the apostles. And from this point on in Matthew's gospel, Peter's going to continue to, to be out front in, in many ways, in many different situations. And Peter acknowledges that if it is the Christ that he can bid Peter walk to him on the water. What a, what, a, what a confession to think about. 
Like Peter's not saying, I can do it. Peter is saying, just like so many that had, had come to him for healing and had said, if, Lord, if you will, I can be made clean. I can be healed. I can be made whole. Peter says, if you will it, Lord, I can walk to you on the water. Verse number 29, he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. So Peter responds by getting out of the boat and walking on the water toward Jesus. And again, if there had been uh, some uh, astonished um, bystanders looking at this and looking at Peter in amazement like they were at Peter and John after they healed the man at the temple gate uh, in the book of Acts, Peter would have said the very same thing. Why are, you, why are you looking at me as if it's my own power by which I am walking on this water? But then we get to verse 30. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. So Peter began to look around at the storm, and he was afraid, and so he started then to sink down into the water, and he cries out to Jesus to save him. In verse 31, and immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? So Jesus does take him by the hand and asks him why he doubted. There's Peter who had stepped out of the boat, standing on water in, in the midst of a stormy sea, and then he began to doubt. In verse 32, and when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. So Matthew notes how that they, and I think Mark makes this even more explicit, that, that when Jesus takes Peter by the hand, they immediately are in the ship. And immediately when they're in the boat, just as immediately the wind and the waves and all of this stop. So not only had Jesus walked on the water, but he had also controlled the water and the wind, had commanded the water and the wind, as it were. Again, things that are very obviously uh, revealed in the Old Testament that only Yahweh can do. Verse 33, Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Now, this is the first time that we see the disciples bowing to Jesus, and that's the indication of the language that's used here. And they confess him to be the Son of God. Again, seeing him as being God in the flesh. This means he was more than man. He, he, was, he is divine, everlasting, inseparable part of the Godhead or the, the Trinity. And notice that Jesus also received their worship. I mean, he has clearly revealed his deity to them. And he receives their worship as deity. And yet, we can, we can see in the Bible 
uh, in different times that angels would not allow people to bow down to them or the prophets or, or others. But Jesus certainly received their worship because he is the son of God. And then we get to this last part where Matthew gives us this summary that sort of wraps up um, this particular section and uh, before we get into the conflict in, in chapter 15, beginning with verse 34. And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. So this string of miracles here wraps up with this summary. And Gennesaret was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. So again, they were crossing the lake, at least that northern portion. Verse 35 says, And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased. So the people of the village recognized, knew who Jesus was, and he spread the word throughout all of the area. And the result was that from all around, people thronged to Jesus with their sick and their infirm. Verse 36, And besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. So Jesus' frame, uh, or fame rather, had grown to the extent that they merely asked to touch the fringe of his robe. And, and those who did were those that Jesus willed um, to touch him, and they were all completely healed. So as we think about this, this particular section, and we have these three miracle episodes in in this section and again all of these miracles really are are centering around the identity of Jesus and even though the crowd continued to throng around Jesus like we saw at the start and again at the end we also know that they were not in the main believing John made that quite clear in his account in John 6 after the feeding of the 5,000 uh, because he gives Jesus, Jesus words to the crowd that he knew that they were unbelieving. They were following him because they'd seen the miracles, because they'd ate of the, the bread in the wilderness. They had seen the, the sick become healed, and maybe many of them themselves had, had, had experienced such healing. So these miracles also highlight for us instruction for the 12 apostles, which is an important theme that is now going to continue through Matthew's gospel. Jesus revealed his identity to them, and and he's going to continue to reveal more to them. And when we think about it, that's exactly what he said back in chapter 13. To them that have, more would be given, he said. And he told the apostles, you are those that have, because it's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom, those to reveal those things that have been kept hidden from the creation. So we see this actually already being fulfilled, already coming to pass. They are already receiving more because they are those that have. Now, Jesus is obviously here in these miracles. It's, it's again, and I didn't even really necessarily try to point out every, every sort of little um, hint or, or echo or, or parallel that we might find with, with some of these other accounts with Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness and actually a, a number of places with them. 
But Jesus is obviously using these situations and these sayings from the Old Testament to intentionally emphasize his deity to his apostles. And the miracles that he worked were on a completely unprecedented scale and magnitude. There's not been anything like that. In the, in the history of the world, even when we go back to the Old Testament and we see some of the miracles that were worked and we see some of the miracles that the apostles worked later, but to think about this short time frame and just the number and the magnitude of the miracles that Jesus worked, it's, it's, it's just unheard of. And Matthew also here in this section begins to show some of the weakness of the apostles. The apostles are receiving more, but they're also struggling with it to a degree. They're, they're having a, a difficult time receiving this new and putting it together and understanding it together with the old. And so they are going to continue to sort of struggle that way um, as we go on through the gospel. And that's, again, that's going to continue in Matthew sort of introducing this here. And how, how can they sort out this the new things that Jesus is giving them, the more that they are receiving? How can they sort all that out and understand what's going on presently around them? And that is uh, a bit of a, of a, str- of a struggle um, for the disciples and understandably so.